This is Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine, and I'm John Wiener. Now it's time to go back to the dark days of the Cold War when muckraking journalists, independent Marxists, trade union rebels, freedom riders, beatniks, and peace protesters all found a home at America's oldest weekly, The Nation magazine. That was the work of a great editor who was also a great historian, Carrie McWilliams. Now he's the subject of a great biography written by Peter Richardson. Peter teaches humanities and American studies at San Francisco State. He's the author of another wonderful book, A History of Ramparts Magazine. And he also has written the new book, American Prophet, The Life and Work of Carrie McWilliams. Peter Richardson, welcome back. Thank you, John, very much. Well, Carrie McWilliams went to New York in the spring of 1951 from California, where he had lived and worked. His assignment was editing a special emergency civil liberties issue of The Nation. What was the state of the nation at that point, both the magazine and the country? Well, it was a very tough time for the magazine, and in part because it was a tough time for the country. Uh, It was really basically the beginning of what we now think of as the McCarthy era. And the nation was a punching bag in many ways for for the anti-communist right, of course, but also for the anti-communist left. And that included people like Arthur Schlesinger Jr., who was targeting the nation magazine and the people who contributed to it and edited it. And Kerry McWilliams at that time was the West Coast contributing editor for the nation magazine. He'd been writing for the magazine for some time and very productively and prolifically. That kind of anti-communism had become standard fare on the West Coast, but it was just becoming a kind of national issue of some importance in the late 1940s. I mean, really beginning in 1946. So by the time Kerry McWilliams agreed to come from Los Angeles to New York, McWilliams was ultimately given the task of shepherding the magazine through that difficult period, which some people believe was probably the toughest decade of of that magazine's long life. And who was Kerry McWilliams when he went to New York in 1951, aside from being a contributing editor to the magazine? He had been writing extraordinary sequence of books beginning in 1939. He was based in Los Angeles at that time. He was a lawyer and litigator. He had been representing farm workers and some very difficult struggles. Really, since the mid-30s, he had been mixing journalism and book writing and legal activism. And then in the 1940s, he hit a stride as an author and wrote almost one book a year between 1939 and 1950. And these were very powerful, impactful, hard-hitting books. Um, He wrote a book on the Japanese evacuation and internment that came out in 1944 when the internment was still going on, essentially demolishing every argument for the internment. In fact, the book was so impactful that uh, it was quoted in the dissenting Supreme Court opinion that very same year, 1944. So he wasn't just writing to, you know, preaching to the choir with these books. He was taking some real risks. He was interrogated by the California Unactivities, Committee on Un-American Activities in California in secret session and executive session. The uh, transcript has never been published, but some of it is included in the book. It's extraordinary colloquy between 
sort of racist and, and anti-communist legislators and Kerry McWilliams. The Los Angeles Times was no friend of Kerry McWilliams. The Associated Farmers, which was the big agricultural political action group at that time, said he was agri- agricultural pest number one, worse than pear blight or boll weevil. This is when he was serving in state government. Uh, J. Edgar Hoover had him on his custodial detention list, which meant that he could be rounded up in case of national emergency. Many of these positions are unobjectionable now, of course, but at that time, you know, he had to pay the wages of dissent. So moving on to the magazine, in the forward to your book written by Mike Davis, he says Kerry McWilliams, quote, almost single-handedly revived the muckraking tradition in American journalism, close quote. Tell us about that. Well, one of the things that's true of, of American uh, journalism, uh, especially in the 20th century, has been that it's, it's expensive to do real reporting. It's cheaper and more profitable to, to run opinion and analysis, and it's, that's both true for the right and for the left. If you look around, even now, if you, if you watch cable television news, for example, you'll see that there's not a lot of deep reporting going on there. They're typically taking stories out of the newspaper and then talking about that. And that was certainly true of the nation, which has never been rolling in, in dough. But when McWilliams took over, he managed to create a space for some in-depth investigative journalism in the nation. So essentially took, took a magazine known for opinion and analysis and created some room for muckraking. And, you know, they had a different a variety of mechanisms for doing that. One of them is that they would sometimes turn over an entire issue, the nation comes out weekly, and just give it to a long investigative story. The person who wrote the story would then sort of turn that into a, a book. And so it sort of made sense for the for the writer, and nation didn't have to pick up the total cost for all that work. And people got a real story about something that they might not have known about before. And you know, during this time, of course, the nation was very stout defender of civil rights. They were an early critic of the our role in Vietnam. I mean, one thing that that was true at that time, it's hard to it's hard to imagine it now, was that there was almost no reporting on or oversight of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. At one point, one of the people who was who was accused of treason, essentially, of uh, uh, a State Department, I believe State Department bureaucrat was had charges made against him, and his lawyer asked to see an FBI file. And the federal uh, FBI director, Jagger Hoover, not only didn't furnish the file, but actually pressured the judge to convict the attorney of contempt of court for even asking for the file. So nobody outside of the FBI had really seen any of these files. And the oversight, you know, the congressional oversight was very weak. And so that was the situation with the FBI. And, and yet, McWilliams was able to, to uh, run investigative reports on the FBI when, almost, when that was almost never happening, especially in the daily newspapers. It's a very extraordinary act for a small magazine, even a, an established one like The Nation, to, to break that kind of story. Another example, actually, is when the uh, nation warned uh, or reported on the buildup, military buildup before the Bay of Pigs invasion of Cuba. 
And that's kind of an interesting story because the story was later picked up by the New York Times. Later, when the Bay of Pigs invasion failed, President Kennedy, in a private conversation with one of the New York Times editors, said, you know, you really, you really hung me out to dry on that one. And the New York Times editor said, yeah, but the story had already been reported in the nation. And Kennedy said, yeah, but it wasn't news until the New York Times ran it. So it's not just breaking these stories, as the nation did many times. It's also getting the other outlets to pick them up. And that was that amplifying effect is, is the best way for magazines like The Nation to really sort of move the pile when it comes to some of these big stories. One more thing we need to talk about, Hunter S. Thompson. McWilliams brought along a lot of skilled young writers, partly because he didn't have much of an editorial budget. So he was, he was kind of a talent scout in many ways, trying to find people who were up and coming and wouldn't cost a fortune to run their stuff. And one of the writers he identified was Hunter S. Thompson, who at that time was living in San Francisco. He began a correspondence with Thompson, who at that point had only written stories for the National Observer, which is, you know, it was a Wall Street Journal publication long out of print. And Thompson was flattered. He also needed the work very badly, and, but he didn't really have any great story ideas. He pitched a few to, to McWilliams. They weren't very good. And McWilliams said, how about a story on these motorcycle gangs, which had come into the news uh, because of, of uh, the California Attorney General had published a report about them. And Thompson jumped at the chance. Uh, he really needed the work. It was a difficult story to do. It, it, it took a certain amount of physical courage to do it, but Thompson was just that sort of person. So he went out and rode around uh, and hung around and, and interviewed the Hells Angels, both in Oakland and in San Francisco, filed his story with the nation, which ran it. And promptly, Thompson received seven or eight contract offers from major New York publishers. So that was a good example of the way that an intervention by Kerry McWilliams could really take a fairly obscure figure Thompson was not well-known at that time, and turn him into a best-selling author. Thompson, for the rest of his life, held McWilliams in high regard, almost uniquely among the many editors that Thompson worked for. He respected McWilliams for, for the rest of his career. And would, every time he was in New York, would go by the nation's office and try to get some story ideas, <laughs> which McWilliams was full of. So, Peter, how would you sum up the work of Kerry McWilliams? What's notable, I think, about McWilliams is that he produced a lot of first-rate work, journalism and books. He sponsored a lot of important work as a nation, articles by Howard Zinn, Ralph Nader, Theodore Rozak on the making of the counterculture, and so on. But he also inspired a lot of great work, for example, by Cesar Chavez, who was a big fan of McWilliams's, by Luis Valdez, who wrote Zoot Suit, also a big McWilliams fan. And also Robert Town, who uh, wrote the Oscar award-winning screenplay for Chinatown. He got the idea for that screenplay by reading one of McWilliams' books, Southern California Country, An Island on the Land, which came out in 1946. And when he discovered that, he realized you know, that he had something that he could turn into what eventually became a kind of secret history of Los Angeles. And of course, you know, probably one of the most notable Hollywood films of the second half of the 20th century. 
Kevin Starr, the California historian, sees McWilliams as California's most astute political observer and the single finest nonfiction writer on California ever. I want to argue that McWilliams was one of the most versatile, productive, and consequential public intellectuals of the 20th century. Peter Richardson's book about him is called American Prophet, The Life and Work of Kerry McWilliams. It's out now from the University of California Press with a foreword by Mike Davis. Peter, thanks for talking with us today. Thank you very much, John. You've been listening to Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine. You can hear more interviews like this one at thenation.com, and you can subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.